truth, honor, loyalty, character. Hey, and welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. This is your host, Maddie Arnold. I'm the director of the Long Green Line movie. Today, we are releasing one of the raw interviews with Coach Newton. This one was recorded in the winter of 2004. This is shortly after the York team won the 2004 Illinois State title, and after Sean McNamara and the Detman Twins finished 1, 2, and 3. He talked a little bit about the Nike Team National and how the Portland course was designed at that year. He talks about his essential eternal verities, his focus on the golden rule, and he tells some happy stories about when he was a young man competing and his father went to every one of his sporting events. Since we last sat down to talk, you've had a couple of victories. Want to tell us about those? Yeah, two. If I was scripting a movie, I couldn't have written it any better than... What happened this year, we wanted to win our 24th state championship, and we went one, two, three in a state meet, which is historical because nobody's ever done that. We won with 56 points. The next team was way up in the, over 100. I think we won by almost 95 points. Then the kids trained for four weeks in the cold to go to the national meet. First time ever, Nike had a high school team championship. They invited the top 21 teams in America to Portland, Oregon. And our kids, Illinois rules are, once the season ends and state meet, that's it, no coaching. So Charlie Kern and I couldn't coach him. McNamara, my best runner, coached the guys outside, freezing cold weather, four weeks. They fly to Portland, 40 degrees. The course was flooded, mud. The pressure was astronomical because we were ranked number two and this team from New York was supposed to be the best in history from New York. And we beat them by 35 points. And we won the first national team championship in history, which, Matt, that's marvelous because they can never take that away from you. And it took us 50 years to get in. We've been like Rodney Dangerfield. All these people across America are always saying, well, that Illinois, that's not a good state. The state course is short. It's flat. There's no hills. And York's not that good. It's all a mirage. And then when you go out to Portland and you face all the other guys and the pressure's there on the day, and McNamara wins the race by 120 yards, he's the national champ, and then we win the team title. So this year was what I call a forever moment for me. And I'm home with my back, laying on my back here in 12803 Eagle Ridge Lane for the last five weeks in pain. And that's the first time I've started to sit up a little bit, walk a little bit. I probably got another month or two to go before I'm really back to, you know, par. So it's been a wonderful time. You didn't get to go to the meet? I didn't get to go to the meet. Couldn't make any contact with the guys during that four weeks. I was home here in Huntley laying on the couch. If you weren't injured, could you go? Yeah, I was scheduled to go out there as a speaker, to speak at the dinner, all the athletes, the motivational speaker. But I had to cancel that because I can't fly. I can't sit up for three and a half hours to go to Portland. I can't sit up to go to Phoenix. My wife went back last week because when I sit, it just hurts my lower back on the operation. All the things I went in for to get operated on are gone. But now I have to wait for that operation to heal because they did so much you know, cleaning out the nerves and doing all those things and cutting muscles, laying them back, taking off part of my vertebra. So it's a lot of pain in there. Were you? How did they determine national champions before this meet? Just like they do in the college of football, they got the AP wire poll, they got the UPS coaches poll, and people vote on it. All right, so they've done the same thing for the last twenty years. Ten years ago, it stopped, but prior to twenty years prior to that, they had a 
a postal meet. You could run three miles on a track against another team, submit the times to a guy in California, then he'd rank them on a time. So that was pretty legit. But then the last 10 years, that stopped, and now it's been the Harrier Magazine, strictly a poll where a guy named Mark Bloom ranks the teams in the United States. But it's, it's guesswork. And I think we've won two of those mythical things with him on the Harrier in 10 years. And then this year, we were ranked number one for three weeks, and all of a sudden, this team from New York came from 25th place, and they put them in first. And I called out there and said, how can that be? We're undefeated. We kill everybody. How can we get passed by a team in 25th place? And he said, well, they ran the greatest team time in history at Van Cortland Park. So this team is the greatest team ever on the East Coast. So they ranked them number one the rest of the year. So when we went out there, the kids went out there, this Manlius from New York was number one, and we beat them. So it was just a wonderful thing that on the day our guys produced. What did you tell your guys before they left? Well, I said, don't embarrass us. Make sure you train hard that four weeks you're going because if you go out there, everybody's wanting to say York stinks. And if you go out there and fall flat in your face and don't train for that meet, you're going to embarrass me and the school and the town. you got to be ready. So McNamara, by force of will, got all those guys to train in the cold for four weeks. And they went out there and McNamara said later, he said, the state meet was for us, the guys on the team. But he said, this meet... It's for Coach Newton. We wanted to win this for him because they knew I was home hurt. So it was very tender and very touching, and I was really proud of these guys. Did you get a medal? No, I didn't get I would have got one if I was out there, but I didn't get anything, nothing. They got uniforms. They got clothes, and, you know, all the kids did. It was a nice affair for them. They had a wonderful banquet. They stayed at the Del Coronado Hotel. Oh, no, that was next week in the Foot Locker. But they put them in a, in a big hotel in Portland, and they had a wonderful time, and they met a lot of nice people, but they're the champs, and that's what counts. What's McNamara's plans for next year? He's laid back. He's being recruited by Stanford, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Wake Forest, Oregon, and he's going to be a late signer. He wants to wait and see. He's going to visit Stanford and Michigan, and, and Notre Dame, I think, is after him also. So he's keeping his mind open because he's – He's every bit as good as Donald Sage. And Donald Sage is now a 10-time All-American with one year to go at Stanford. So this kid's going to be awesome. So you guys are the national champs? So our guys are the national champs? Absolutely. And how was the course? The course was at a race, you know, a horse racing course. And they had rain and everything prior, the two or three days prior to it. So it was like a, it was on the turf, but it was all mud. And then they, they made it a European course. They put bales of hay. You had to hurdle them. They had moguls like you were skiing, four moguls, and they had to run around those three times. So it was a very difficult course. There were no mountainous hills, but it was a tough course. And there were narrow spots where there were 147 runners, and the course might have only been 10, 10, 15 yards wide. Guys were getting bumped, slugged. So it was a rugged course for everybody. But our guys, they met the challenge. Like McNamara said, on the day we were there. Have you ever considered designing a cross-country course? Have I ever considered designing a cross-country course? Not really. Not really. They, now, they have Barron's Park in Elmhurst, which Mr. Lee Daniels raised all that money, and they've renovated the thing. And Gary Goss, a guy in town that used to run for me back in the 60s, has designed the course. That's not really my forte. 
I like to train our guys. I like to run. I like to compete, but I'm not a course designer. Now uh, Jack Nicholas and how he retires and now he's doing golf courses. No, that's that's out of my perspective. I mean, what what do you what would you say are some of your means to grat for gratification to your men? Well, first of all, the means of gratification to my guys is I want them to know that I, I care about them. And when I'm out recruiting my freshmen, first day of school every year, one of the things that I say to them is, every day that you come to this school and you come to cross-country practice, you're going to get tender, loving care. I said, you're not going to get that in the halls. You're not going to get that in the gym. You're not going to get that in the band. But when you come to cross-country practice, I will guarantee you, that you're gonna get attention from me, you're gonna get tender, loving care, I'm gonna shake your hand, and it's a place where you wanna be. Because there's good guys there, and there's a lot of love, and a lot of good things going on. And so, that's the first thing, that I want them to know I care about them. And if I care about them, they care about me. And then I have two other things. I, I tell the guys right up front, can I trust you? You can trust me. Are you committed to excellence? I am. And do you care about me? Because I care about you. Well, if I get three things out of those kids and they got the same three out of me, then you really got something special going, really special. What was your first year coaching at York? My first year at York was 1956, September, and I never left. So I think, I can't count exactly. This was either the 49th or 48th year at York, and I had two years at Waterman High School, right by DeKalb, a little tiny school. There was 125 K through 12. I was there for two years. So I think this is my 50th year of coaching. And then if I count my two years in the service, where I was the basketball coach and a track coach at Fort Leonard Wood, I've got 52 years in grade, which not too bad. I imagine the 50s were a pretty easy era to get your guys to follow all the dress code rules. But I imagine in the 60s, you got a little more friction. Oh, yeah. The 50s, the kids basically didn't question what you wanted. In other words, they came out and they were willing to run, and whatever you told them, they did it. And then the 60s came with all the rebellion and the Vietnam War and the long hair and the freaks, and it got a lot more difficult. And then you got the lawyers involved, the ACLU or whatever it's called, and you can't make a guy get a haircut, you can't do this, and you can't do that. And discipline kind of went to the way of the wind, but we tried at York at least to maintain what we had as best we could in the conditions that were there. But yeah, it was a difficult time to maintain team unity and team discipline. Where there were still a lot of guys that accepted, but there were a lot of guys questioning, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? But we made it and we're still here. And during the, the Vietnam era, how did that affect the team? Well, I... I at, at York High School with my team, we still had 125, 130 guys out for cross country. So there wasn't that, uh, the kids at York weren't rioting and you know, like some of the college kids were doing. It was still pretty normal, except for a few of the rabble rousers that wanted to cause you a problem, didn't want to do this, didn't want to do that. Parents would call in and why is he doing this? And why does my son have to be there at Saturday at 7 a.m.? And so uh, it was a little more difficult for me, but not that difficult. We still won in the 60s, if you look at the record. I think we won three or four state titles in the 60s. So it was still a good time. What about for the boys individually? Were they scared? I don't think at that time. The college guys, because they're getting close to being out and going into the service, but 
I don't think it really hit the high school kids that early, 16, 17. They knew they had another four or five years and maybe the war would be over. So I didn't sense that, not at all. I, they were still interested in coming, running, being a team, having fun, and, and being successful. Because there's nothing like the 100% pure ecstasy of holding that state trophy up. And you did that with your own hard work and enthusiasm, and you didn't get paid, and you just did it. And it's, it's hard to put it into words. It's 100% pure ecstasy. Whether it's the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, it's the same. Kids love to win. So did you have a problem with the ACLU in the 60s? No, I just used that as an example because they get all the publicity. But no, I didn't personally. Nobody from the ACL came to get on me. But they were, you know, I, I don't want to, maybe I shouldn't have used that term. <laughs> I apologize. Were you ever, has legal action ever been threatened against you regarding uh, your rules? Not, to, I don't remember anybody particularly. No, I don't. There was some parents that complained several times about haircuts, but it never got to, you know, where there was legal action, no. So I survived. And I'm glad because I have a passion for my job and I love coaching, I love being around young people, and I love York High School. It's like my second home. What about the 70s? Well, the 70s, things began to come back to normal. And we, if you look, every decade, we've got two or three, four state championships in that decade. Because we're up to 24 now. So really the, the thing just kind of fed on itself. And I'm now getting, I'm so old now, I'm getting grandsons of guys that ran for me 40 years ago, 30 years ago. I'm getting sons of guys that ran for me 20 years ago. So it just kind of perpetuates itself. And as long as you're doing the right thing and trying to teach life values. And I think coaching is really relationships. X's and O's, you, everybody can read a book and know the right X's and O's, but how come everybody can't win? There has to be this relationship between you and your athletes, and they, you have to have that trust and that commitment and that caring. And when you got that bond, those kids will do anything for you. But some coaches don't get it. They don't get the relationship where you gotta, you gotta get it. If you don't get it, you're not gonna make it. And in the in the eighties, the eighties was no problem. I didn't think I I just eighties and nineties and two thousand. I it's just been wonderful. I mean, everybody knows the rules. They've heard about the York discipline. They know that we work hard, but they know that there's a great reward at the end. And so, no, the last 25 years has just been wonderful. And you've been coaching in the midst of an incredible revolution of like teenage yes. youth. Yes. Their social habits and their sexual habits have evolved and matured a lot quicker than ever before from the 50s till now. Yes. Their means of communication has enhanced dramatically yeah. from you gotta pass a girl a note in class to now they all have cell phones. Yep. And the internet and this messaging. And so basically what's happened is the culture has gotten more convenient, more efficient, and you know, more instant. Yeah. And your sport is much is a, is a commitment-based sport. Right. And how have you been able to balance or to maintain your level of commitment in the midst of all this instant gratification? Well, that's a, a very deep, thoughtful question, how we try to maintain with all the changing things. But I have a statement that I every year I make to my teams that the eternal verities in life never change. 
no matter how much people and societies change, eternal verities are always there. Things like truth, honor, character, those things are always there. So no matter what people tell me about our society's changing, I'm always talking about these things. And I'd say to my guys, you know, your reputation is what people think you are, but your character is what you truly are when mom, dad, and your coach and your preacher aren't there. So I'm always talking about these values in life that transcend all we're doing out on the course. That It's more important in life to be a good person. Good things happen to good people. I'm always talking about the golden rule, doing others you want to do unto you, because there's so many things that take away from your focus nowadays. All these things from the sideline, cell phones, all these games, the internet. But these guys come and, and we talk about these things and, and those are values that when they get out in life, they can use in their profession. So I think that's how we've kind of maintained and fought off this big radical, because things are different. But you look at the York team, they're well kept, they got their ties on, they work hard, they're respectful. You know, I, I say you gotta treat your elders with respect and courtesy. I got a, a tremendous compliment from Joe Henderson, the senior writer of Runner's World. Went to Portland to see me in the national championship. I'm not there. So he watched the race. He called me on Sunday. The race was Saturday, and he said, your guys are magnificent, but the one I want to tell you about, the thing I want to tell you, he says, after the race, when they were standing all together, I went over. I didn't introduce myself. They didn't know who I was. I shook their hand. and He said, they were perfect gentlemen. Nobody raucous and... I mean, you, you see all these things going on in professional athletes. The guy makes a tackle, he wants to do a jitterbug, and the guy scores a touchdown, he wants to do a dance. He said, you guys, they won the national championship, and they were perfect gentlemen. So that, and I wasn't there. Every place they went in public, I said, Dr. Calcaglia, make sure they got their suit and tie on. So they go up to get their trophy. The four teams are up there, okay? Our guys are in suit and tie. They look like businessmen. And I, I got that in 1945 from reading a book on Joe McCarthy, who was the manager of the Yankees when they had DiMaggio and Lou Gehrig and those guys. And he said, when we travel, we always wear coat and tie because when you look sharp, you feel sharp, you play sharp. So I took that from baseball, and I tell my guys, when you look sharp, you feel sharp, you run sharp. And the word out in Oregon was, Jesus, those York guys looked like they were on a business trip. And McNamara, they got up before the, at the Friday night welcoming thing where all the teams were doing skits. McNamara takes our nine guys up there and they stand there looking at the crowd for about 10 seconds and McNamara takes the mic he said, we came here to run. That's our mission. They walked off the stage. They didn't do any dance. They didn't do any singing. People went, wow. Then that night at the banquet they had their suit and tie on. Other guys were in shorts, sandals, which is normal teenagers. Nothing bad. But our guys are sharp. And that's the whole thing. The second, I, I mentioned about the relationships, but coaching also, you have to have a certain amount of discipline. And if the kids respect you, they'll accept that discipline. And as long as you apply it equally to all the guys, you don't have any favorites. McNamara has to wait in line to check out. He can't butt in front of the line and break my hand. He has those 30 guys, and he's the last guy. He waits his turn, comes up, shakes my hand. So they're learning good things, but they're also learning... They got this monstrous work ethic that if they work hard, good things will happen. Because everybody reads my books, 20 quarters here, 10 five halves there, five times one mile there. How come they don't all win? Because you got to have that thing that makes those kids go when they can't go any further, and you make them go further. What is that thing? 
Well, it's it comes from the heart, and you can't really measure that. And until a guy really buys into the program, sometimes guys are in a program for a couple of years and they're still screwing around and not putting out. And then all of a sudden, a light bulb goes off. And once they buy into the program and their parents buy into the program, they'll do anything because they want to be great. McNamara has been like a guy on a mission all year. He wanted to win the state. He won that. He wanted to win the Nationals. He won that. He, you know, he does everything you have to do to get there. No shortcuts. And that's one of the great things about coaching when you see young people come in like that. And I also love all my guys. You got a 10-minute miler when he comes in. He graduates. He's winning 530. He's a winner. And I let him know that in front of the group. So everybody has this role. And we win together. We lose together. And it's like a massive family where everybody's important to our team and to me and to Charlie Kern. Every guy's important. You know, over the years, I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of loss. You know, family members of athletes and oh, yes. athletes themselves. Yes. Uh, how do you address your team in that situation? Well, we always, if it's a team guy, we'll have somebody go out and get a card, and then we have the whole team sign the card, and we send it. Pete Reif, who ran for me, was my captain in 1968 when we won the state cross-country championship. Just dropped dead last year, 52-year-old, a heart attack. I was with him the night before. I went to dinner with him on a Sunday night, 6.30 in the morning on Monday. He's dropped dead in the kitchen. So the wake came, and I had several of my athletes that went to go honor Pete because they knew him because we competed against Hoffman Estates. So we always try to take care of any matters like that because that's part of the family. And at my age, I'm getting a lot of people that are passing, friends, ex-athletes, entourage guys that it, so you got to take care of business you got to honor all that stuff and so I go to all the wakes I go to all the weddings because those are my kids my I got my own three and then about four thousand more so we're very cognizant of that and it's very touching I remember one one year one of our kids was home sick and we won the trophy at the DuPage County meet and we went by in the bus by the guy's house brought the trophy over each year in the state meet, we try to have some person that we're trying to honor, somebody that's crippled or paralyzed or got cancer, so that when a guy's running in the meet, he's got more to run for than just York and himself. And then the meet's over, and we take the gold medal over and give it to that person. This year, we dedicated it to our principal, to Charlie Kern's mother-in-law, who's got cancer, and to P.T. Greider, or yeah, T.J. Greider. Terry Greider, our football coach's son, is fighting. He's his first lieutenant in the infantry in the front line in Iraq. He's been up for three bronze stars where he put his life on the line for his platoon three different times. So we dedicated the season to those three people. Now we won. We send each one of them a gold medal so that they're part of our team. And so we, we, we got all these things to try to motivate guys to go beyond. So when you get to that point in the race where everybody comes to that point where your mind says, I can't take another step. York guys take another step for me, Charlie Kern, for the Long Green Line, for Elmer's, for these people. Um, my high school teammate, Bernie Brady, was dying last year of ALS. And I said, and that's Lou Gehrig's disease. And he just passed away about two months ago. So we dedicated the season last year, and we bought an extra trophy and took it over to his house. Myself and my top seven guys went to his house and gave him the trophy, which is bigger than the Heisman Trophy. And... We did, uh, 10 years ago, Dan Casey, my high school teammate's wife, passed away, and so we gave him the trophy. So we got all these little gimmicks that 
help the team to do better than they think they can possibly do. And that's another thing that I feel really good about myself. I'm able to get kids to do more than they really think they can do. And it shocks them. And once they find that out, it's just Katie by the door. But I, I, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but you got to work at it every day. You know, you've become a mentor to a lot of, a lot of people. Yes. Who were your mentors growing up? Well, I had several mentors. My high school coach was named Eddie O'Farrell. He was my high school basketball coach. I just idolized the guy. And he, he swore a lot, and I kind of picked that up from him, as you well know. And I got to Northwestern, and my freshman coach was a guy named Rut Walter. He became like a second father to me. My own father was my hero. Came to every meet, every, every event I was in in high school. Took off work, came. Followed me all over the country when I was running track at Northwestern. My mother was my hero. She took care of me. I was an only child. Then when I got out, I started looking around at coaches, and I had three or four guys. Arthur Lillard, who just passed away in Houston last week at 87, famous New Zealand coach. I had him over here about six times in my home in the 70s and 80s and picked his brain. Dr. Joe Veal, a famous coach at Adams State. I picked his brain. He's like my brother. And then Bill Bowerman, who started the running craze at Oregon. I picked his brain and used his. So I, and then the, finally, Peter Coe, Sebastian Coe's father and coach. So our program at York is Arthur Lilliard, it's Joe Veal, it's Peter Coe, it's Bowerman. And you take those guys, and those were my mentors. And now I'm doing the same thing to other people. They come to me, and I help them, and I feel good. I've got 30 of my own guys that are out coaching now. York High School, ex-York runners that are in the coaching profession. So it's like I've handed them the baton. And they're doing the things there that we did, and, and it's working. So that's wonderful. That's a, a thing of glory to me to see those kids doing what they're doing. I think what you do with your athletes, you know, you create kind of their own private religion. Yeah. And it's, it's own spirituality. Very spiritual. Who would you consider your spirit, spiritual guides? Well, you know, it's, it's funny you ask that because when, when I was in high school, I always went to church with my, my grandmother. My mother and father weren't going to church too much. They used to take my grandma to church. And then when I got to Northwestern, I'd come home every weekend on Sunday and pick up my grandmother and take her to church. So I was, it's hard to believe with, with a little swearing that I'm doing now that I was that, but for like 10 or 12 years, I hardly missed a Sunday. And now I'm getting older and it's, it's getting harder for me to, to go all the time. But I am really... A pretty spiritual person. I believe in the good Lord and I pray to him all the time and you know he's getting me through this operation and I try to show my spirituality to my guys without being a preacher you know but just talking about the golden rule and doing unto others as you want them to do unto you and being a good person and, and then I have another saying that's not really spiritual but you can have it makes you think a little bit the greatest thing in life is not in never having fallen but in rising up again, the good Lord will pick you up and you got to go back at it again because everybody gets knocked down. You can't win them all. And so I have a little saying every day that's kind of either spiritual or motivation to start my team meeting. Because I remember at Northwestern, we never had one team meeting unless we were going to a trip. So I'd go to practice every day and half the guys wouldn't be there. They were at classes. And I hated that. So when I started coaching, I have a 10, 12, 15-minute meeting every day where the kids all sit they chit-chat, they're bonding. And then I say, quiet, we got a meeting. And then I, 
I end up with a little saying for the day, my thought for the day. And it's something spiritual, thoughtful, motivational. And guys take that and 20 years later, they'll come back and, you know, just Joe Nicholas said the other day, good things happen to good people. Where'd he get that? That's what I told him. So I try to give them things that'll help them as they go on through the whole thing here. And when you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I, I, sports was my life. When I was seven or eight years old, I knew that I wanted to be a coach. I remember I used to run in track meets for the YMCA, and then the Sun-Times had a meet when I was like nine or ten, and I won that. Maybe I was 11. I won the 50-yard dash running in tennis shoes. And I just knew that I wanted to be a coach. I wasn't quite sure yet if I wanted to be basketball coach, track coach. I didn't know what cross country was when I was a little guy. But that's all I did, go to the Y. I was in YMCA swimming meets, track meets, basketball tournaments, and that's all I did. And then I went to high school and I was, I got 12 letters. I was on five different teams. I played tennis, I ran track, I played baseball, I played basketball, I played football. I just loved sport. Then I got to Northwestern and I just was a track guy. And then I went in the Army and I was lucky to be the Fort Leonard Wood basketball coach, traveled all over America. I had three All-Americans on that team. I was the track coach, traveled all over America. Got out of the Army, went right to Waterman. And it's been my passion. I, I just, I can hardly wait to get to York every day. People say, how can you do that? You're 75. Why should I retire when I'm doing something that I love? And those kids keep you young and it gives you some place to go. And they give me love just like I give them love. And my wife is happy with it because the other half of the year we go to Phoenix and regenerate and come back here in the nice weather. So I was a lucky guy because you can ask kids in high school, what do you want to be? I don't know. What are you taking in college? I don't know, but I knew. And then I devoted my whole life to it and it's been a dream come true for me. If you, if you had to choose another industry to be in, what do you think you would have become? Okay, what would I do if I wasn't coaching? I know I would love to be a full-time motivational speaker. I do a lot of that, but not in the big time where those guys making 25, 30, 40 grand, 50 grand a speech, but I do a little bit and I love it. It's like being an actor. And I think you're an ex-actor. You know, you get up and you're speaking and you're motivating people and they give you a hand. And, and if I didn't do that, I would love to be a sports broadcaster. What, what a life to go to the game, sit in the press box, eating the sandwiches, talking about sports, those are the two things, but the best was being a coach. What do you see as the most, the closest thing, the closest world outside of sports? To sports. The closest world to sports? Right. Wow, that's a tough question. I, I'm not really sure if I understand what you're getting at, but... Uh, well, it could be an art form, it could be a, a business model, it could be a corporate model, it could be a... Well, I think a corporate model where, where if it was like the Asian model, the Asian corporations, if you've read any books on it, they create their company from the bottom up. So the little guy thinks he has a chance and a, he has part ownership. In America, it's from the CEO down. And the little guy doesn't think he's much. And as a consequence, he takes days off. He just doesn't buy into the company. I, I wouldn't mind running a a company and, and organize it from the 
the bottom up so the little guy bought into the show just like these runners buy into the show I think that'd be fun if you were to coach another sport if you were if there was a another Joe Newton that was coaching cross country at York what sport do you think you would have coached well I started out I all my life I wanted to be a basketball coach because I played basketball in high school I got cut I didn't make the freshman team at Northwestern which is a major disappointment for me but at Waterman, I coached two years of basketball. and Fort Leonard, I coached two years of basketball. But I suddenly realized that I didn't have control. The referees controlled your destiny. And if they had a bad game, you know, you couldn't win. And also, my, five, my center at Waterman was 5'10". We're playing teams with 6'8", 6'9", centers. Where when I got into track and cross country, you can really control that. There's no referees, really. You run fast, you jump far, you pole vault high so you have more control and so I ended up being right where I wanted to be but my secondary was basketball so you've in a lot of people's eyes you've achieved legend status what does that mean to you personally what does achieving legend status mean to me personally well it means that I'm doing my job right I'm helping kids and when I go out to lecture I tell people the happiest people I know in this world are people that are in a profession that's helping other people. These guys are in a profession to make money. No matter how much you make, you want more, and they're never happy. But it's people, teachers, and doctors, and counselors that are helping people, they're happy. So when a guy says that I'm a legend in my profession, that means I'm doing my job, and it, it just it makes me feel good. A guy called me the other day, John Kurtz, the coach at Fenton is on vacation between cross country and track in Florida. He's not teaching anymore. And he says, you've gone from a legend to an icon. I said, what is an icon? He said, that's about four steps higher than a legend. I said, well, that's good. It made me feel good that he said that because you want to be the best. And if you're succeeding and helping people and making them feel good, well, that makes me feel good. It keeps me young. And like I say, I've got a passion for what I do. I want to be there every day. I don't want anybody else coaching my Mighty Mites. I want to be there. I've only missed one day for sickness in 50 years of coaching. One day. I've been there with stress fracture, broken leg, pneumonia, walking pneumonia, strep throat. I go there because that's where I want to be. That's what I'm getting paid to do. There's a lot of people that can't ever win a state title, but as long as they love their job and they're going there and they're putting out 100% and trying to help the kids, they may not be a legend, but at least they're doing the right thing and they're helping kids and making the world a better place to be. I mean, I'm just lucky that I got to the right school at the right time and got a little something going and it now it kind of perpetuates itself. So I'm very lucky and I have wonderful kids and I have great support in the town. But I also know this, no matter, I learned this reading about Abraham Lincoln, who's one of my heroes like 30 years ago, he said, whenever I make a decision in life, immediately 50% of the people think I'm right and 50% think I'm wrong, no matter what my decision is. So he said, I make my decision, I follow the course to the end. So I learned 30 years ago not to be bothered by people that are always correcting you and criticizing you and jumping all over you. you got, you know, you've got to make the call, and when you make it, follow it to the end and don't worry about it. And that made my life a lot easier after I read that. In all your life, you've never lived in Elmhurst, right? In all my life, I have never lived in Elmhurst. I lived very close. I was in Oak Brook. And first, I was in Wheaton. 
We lived there for, from 56 to 67. Then we moved to Oakbrook. We were there for 28 years. Then we moved to Naperville. Now we moved to Huntley. I didn't really want to be right in Elmer's because I learned when I was in Waterman, that tiny town, and you live in that tiny town. Everybody knows your business. You go in a barbershop. Guy wants to tell you how you lost a basketball game. You go stop, and some other guy's yelling at you. So when I got to the big time, I thought it'd be a little better if I lived a little bit away from the school. But then I regretted it because when my son Thomas was such a great athlete over at Hinsdale Central as freshman and sophomore year, I was wishing he was with me at York. So for three years, we, I forgot we did live in Elmhurst. 80, 80 to 83, we lived in Elmhurst. Bob Paddock moved to my house in, in uh, Oak Brook, and I moved to his house in Elmhurst which was right behind the high school, so that my boys could go to York. Your boys went to York? Yeah, their last two years. They, Were you able to coach them? Yeah, Tom Newton was a high jumper for me, and he finished, I think he finished ninth in the state meet. He was in the finals of the high jump. He went 6'6", six, six, and then he was an all-state honorable mention basketball player. We went to the, we won the regional, sectional. We lost in the super sectional of Mendel, and they went to the state final and lost by two points to East St. Louis. We were 22 and seven. So Thomas Newton was a great athlete at York High School in 80, 80 81 and 81, 82. He graduated in 82. He was our leading scorer and leading rebounder in basketball and he was our, our high jumper in, in track. So that was a great experience. That I lived in Elmhurst for three years and it, it was wonderful. It, it wasn't like being in a little town. It was big enough for you know, people didn't really know where you were at, and nobody was bothering you in the barbershop. And Did you coach John, too? John was not an athlete. John was in the drama and in the band, and so we went to all his plays, and whatever he was in, we went to the band when he would be playing band concerts and all that stuff. So he, he had his own thing. He was good in all he did. Thanks for listening to the Long Green Line podcast. Please like, comment, and subscribe to this podcast to help us spread the word about this great work. And check out our movie website, longgreenlinemovie.com, for links to streaming the film, to purchase merchandise like hats, DVDs, T-shirts, and so much more. You can also get all the show notes for these podcast episodes. This podcast was produced by Greg Balza with music created by Kyle Whitland. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Arnold. These podcast interviews are also now shared on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash longgreenline. Check us out on youtube.com slash longgreenline. Check us out on Instagram, run underscore longgreenline. Talk to you next time.